everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. So it's September. Welcome back, everybody. And I went to see It Chapter 2 last night. Um, If you want to hear my non-spoilery review, just make sure to stick around to the end of the episode, and I will tell you guys what I thought about the movie. Until then, if you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more, make sure to check out Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. As always, listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order at any time, and there is always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. So we're going to jump right into um, this chapter of The Stand, chapter 18, because it's quite a lengthy chapter, and I have a lot to say about it. So um, just a recap of chapter 17. Last week, General Starkey was informed that a pair of reporters out of Houston had started to connect the dots about Project Blue, and he, uh, he more or less ordered their execution. Both the reporter and the photographer were shot to death, and Captain Tripps remains under the radar to the general public for the time being. And that takes us to chapter 18, which brings us back to Shoyo, Arkansas, where we left Nick Andros. Um, If you guys remember, uh, Nick cannot hear, nor can he talk, and he was beaten and robbed on his way out of Shoyo. Sheriff Baker has agreed to help uh, Nick round up the men who robbed him and beat him. And Sheriff Baker, by the end of that chapter, also began to show signs of a summer cold, a.k.a. Captain Tripps. So over the course um, of a couple days in Chapter 18, Baker has managed to arrest Vince Hogan, Mike Childress, and Billy Warner, three of the four men who attacked Nick Andros, and the fourth, Ray Booth, who is also uh, Baker's brother-in-law, he skipped town. Uh, He must have heard that Baker was out looking for them, and he's gone. So Billy and Mike are pretty hacked off at Nick. Um, who was given a job by Baker to kind of clean up the holding cells, uh, do some odds and ends jobs around the the station. Um, That was kind of to make up for Nick having his pay stolen. And like Baker theorized uh, before in Chapter 9, if he could get Vince Hogan uh, by himself, Vince would likely break very quickly and squeal on Booth, Childress, and Warner. And it seems like Baker knew what he was talking about because he went after Hogan first, who protested up until he got hungry, and then he basically told Baker everything. So they arrest uh, Mike Childress next, and then Billy Warner, who was, uh, they found, quickly packing up his things to leave town. Uh, Booth apparently moved much faster than Warner did because he was gone before they could get to him. Baker's wife, Jane, who uh, they call Janie, she also happens to be Booth's sister, like I mentioned, and she is understandably upset that her brother was involved in such a brutal attack, um, a brutal assault of Nick. And But Baker says, quote, she's done some crying over him, but she knew what he was, and she knows you can't pick your relatives like you do your friends. That is the truth, if I've ever heard it. So Baker takes Nick home that night to meet Janie and have dinner, and Janie seems like a very nice woman. She is very apologetic for her brother. Um, But, you know, Baker seems like a nice guy, too. He's a decent man. And Nick has garnered a lot of respect for the sheriff. 
Uh, the man went after Booth and the others, like Nick was a longtime resident of Shoyo. And, you know, Nick thinks of it as he was a member of one of the town's most respected families and not just a drifter who couldn't hear or speak. A lot of small towns, um, and I'm probably just stereotyping them right now, but, you know, it seems like a lot of small towns, uh, it's possible the cops would have just run Nick out of town, you know, protect their own. Uh, but Baker kept his promise to to Nick to follow through and go after Booth and the others, even though Booth was his brother-in-law, and he knew that would cause some drama uh, within the family. So at dinner, Baker explains to Janie that he's given Nick a job, uh, mostly cleaning up around the station. Like I said, uh, I guess one of his deputies quit and moved away. And Baker's cold is also getting worse. He's got a bad cough. Um, He's got a slight fever. He's not eating. He's lost his appetite. Given his size, he doesn't think that missing a meal or two is a big deal. But his wife is understandably worried. She wants him to rest. But with three prisoners in the holding cells, they need to eat, etc., etc. Janie suggests that Nick feed them so Baker can go to bed. Uh, but Baker protests. He's not, you know, Nick's not a deputy. He can't leave him in charge of the station. And Janie simply tells Baker to deputize Nick. It's that easy. She won't tell anyone that Nick isn't a resident if um, if Baker won't. So, you know, just like that, in 24 hours, Nick goes from a drifter to a prisoner to a deputy. So that's pretty fun. <laughs> I don't know how that would fly <laughs> in real life, but hey, it's all for the story. So Baker uh, feels guilty for sending Nick back to the police station with the three men who beat him. And but you know what? He's feeling really poorly. He really does need to sleep and get some rest. So he informs Nick that there's a 45 in the third drawer of his desk. But he informs Nick also, you know, he tells him don't take the gun back to the holding cells or the keys. Um, he explains that his deputy and the deputy's name is not I can't think of it at the moment, but essentially the deputy he did have moved to Little Rock after the crib death of his uh, baby. So that's pretty sad. So he's he's kind of in between deputies now. So Nick helping out is very clearly appreciated. Um, I'm not entirely sure what Baker would have done if Nick hadn't been there. It seems like I don't know if Baker is the only uh, police officer in Shoyo at the moment. I'm not entirely sure what the population of Shoyo is. Um, I think most small towns would have at least a handful of cops, but, um, for the sake of the story, it seems like it's basically, uh, Baker at the moment. So he wants Baker or he wants Nick to be safe. And he suggests that Nick not get too close to the bars. Uh, he doesn't want Mike and the others to be able to reach Nick. And he, he informs Nick not to fall for it if one pretends to be sick, because that is the oldest trick in the book. And if one is sick, Doc Soames, and I hope I say that right, it's S-O-A-M-E-S. -E I always say Soames in my head. If I'm wrong, will you please tell me? <laughs> but uh, Doc Soames will see them in the morning. Baker is very curious about Nick still. Uh, he wants to know why a young man like Nick is out, out on his own. Why is he out wandering in these strange towns? And Nick offers to write down some of his story that night at the police station. Uh, Baker explains that he did put Nick's name out on the wire to check into him. Uh, Nick understands this. It's standard operating procedure after all. And Nick is not worried because uh, he has nothing to be worried about. He's clean. He's of age. Uh, he hasn't committed any crimes. And he doesn't expect Baker to uh, get anything, you know, in return that's going to 
put him in uh, Baker's uh, not-so-good graces anymore. So he's clean. Uh, even so, Baker is worried about Nick, and he wants him to be safe. And you know what? It's, I found it really sweet how quickly Janie and Baker have taken—and Baker's name is John, but I call him Baker. I'm sorry. But they've taken Nick in under their wing, and they've, um, they're feeding him. They're giving him this job. Janie seems to trust him almost right off the bat. And I guess that could be because she's worried about her husband. She wants him to rest, and Nick is the um, only option that they have to watch the station and the prisoners. But uh, Janie also doesn't seem like she's an idiot. So I think if she got a bad feeling from Nick or any kind of bad vibes, that she would probably not suggest that Baker deputize him. But that's not how it worked out, which is great. So there's also a place in Shoyo called Ma's Truck Stop. And they send a busboy to the station to deliver three meals. Nick takes these meals to the cells and smartly pushes them um, into the bottom of the cell doors with a broom handle so he can keep his distance. Um, Childress, Mike Childress, he is not a pleasant person. And we already knew that because, you know, he helped beat and rob a, you know, a young guy trying to leave town. So obviously he's not a good person, but He's jawing at Nick, who only catches bits and pieces of it because he can't hear anything. Um, But Nick ignores him, which is easy for him to do. And he decides to start writing out his history for the sheriff to read. We find out that Nick was born in Caslin, Caslin, Nebraska. C-A-S-L-I-N. Caslin? Is that, I wonder if that's a real city. Is that, if you guys are from Nebraska, check that for me because I don't know. I should have looked it up. Caselin, Nebraska. He was born on November 14th, 1968, and that would make him 21 years old. Uh, the story, this is taking place in June, so uh, that makes him the same age as Fran. And Nick's dad was a farmer in debt, um, and his mom was six months pregnant with Nick when his dad. Uh, had a heart attack and died. Uh, I guess they were driving on their way to the doctor's office and something happened to the truck, went off the road into a ditch, and that triggered Nick's dad to have a heart attack. Um, Nick was born unable to hear, and he said in his letter to the sheriff, he says this was a tough break on top of his mom losing her husband the way that she had. Um, His mom lost the farm in 1973, where she then moved to Iowa because um, a friend of hers got her a job in a bakery. And they lived there until 1977 when Nick's mom was struck by a motorcycle on her way home from work and killed. Um, And Nick explains that the man wasn't speeding. It was just bad luck because his brakes failed. And um, it's such a small thing, kind of like, I don't want to say it's a throwaway line because it's about his mother dying, but... You know, a lot of people in his position might have been very angry at the person at fault. Um, They might have held a lot of resentment um, and rage towards this person. But Nick dismisses the blame. Um, He says it wasn't the guy's fault. Uh, His brakes just failed. And it was just basically bad luck. Uh, The same church that held his mother's funeral also sent Nick to an orphanage in Des Moines. And Nick was educated there. And I guess I can't, I don't know if I can say educated. He was taught how to read and write, um, which is education, yes, but it doesn't sound like he got a lot of schooling. Um, He takes a break at this point. He takes a break from writing his uh, story to check on the two men. And two of them are sleeping. Warner and Childress are sleeping, but Hogan is awake. And he has red eyes as though he might have been crying. And there is a great passage here that King writes. Um, 
where Nick recalls a word he learned at the movies when he was younger, incommunicado. And this passage here is one of my favorite passages. Um, It's just about a word, but just the way King describes it from Nick's point of view is just perfection. Um, It says, quote, It was a word that had fantastic, Lovecraftian overtones to Nick, a fearful word that echoed and clanged in the brain, a word that inscribed all the nuances of fear that live only outside the same universe and inside the human soul. He had been incommunicado all his life. Oh, I love that. It's so beautiful. God. (laughs) When I think about wanting to be a writer, like I want to be able to describe a word like that. It's just a word. And King just uh, elevates it to just such a gorgeous description. I could go on forever about that passage, but I'm not going to. I'm going to get back to this. (laughs) So Nick goes back to writing. And he realizes that saying the orphanage taught him how to read and write is not entirely accurate. Uh, At least it's not as simple as it sounds. Nick lived in a silent world where words were code. Speech was the moving of the lips, the rise and fall of teeth, the dance of the tongue, as King describes it. Um, And it was his mom who taught him how to read lips. And it was his mom who taught him how to write his name. But Nick didn't really understand the concept of naming things until he was four. Um, And we find out that he didn't know that the tall green things outside were trees until he was six. He wanted to know, but um, he he had, quote, no one had thought to tell him and he had no way to ask. He was incommunicado. It seems like his mom, um, she loved him a lot, and she probably tried to do the best that she could by him, but it also appears as though she didn't think to teach him much um, beyond writing his name and reading lips. I know in this um, in this, in this book, there's the belief um, from some characters that someone who is hard of hearing or can't speak must be, quote, you know, deaf and dumb. And even if Nick's mom loved him, and did what she could, it's possible that she thought the same thing. Maybe she thought Nick simply wouldn't understand the same things that she did. Uh, maybe she didn't think that he would grasp what a tree was if she told him so. And that's really sad to think about um, because Nick is a very intelligent person. And I don't know, I could be wrong, but it feels like his mom taught him just the very basics and left it at that because she didn't know or think that he could handle anything more than that. Um, and you know, at the orphanage, Nick has other kids make fun of his, uh, his silence. They punch him out if none of the staff is around and there didn't seem to be any real reason for it. Um, other than quote, maybe in the vast white class of victims, there is a subclass, the victim of victims. Um, and that was, I think that's a really good line too, um, to describe, you know, the the kids in the orphanage, they're, you know, they're not so different from Nick. Um, it's just how they choose to go about uh, living. And, you know, a lot of bullies, I guess, project their own insecurities onto the smaller people and use them to make themselves feel better. And that seems as though what happened to Nick in this orphanage. And because of this, you know, Nick stopped, um, he stopped wanting to ask and he stopped wanting to know and to communicate with people. It's like he turned off his brain and his thought process began to suffer for it. So this is when Nick began to kind of wander from place to place where everything was nameless to him um, and he felt very hollow and vacant. Um, And then this is where he meets Rudy. Rudy is described as a big man. Um, He's six six feet five inches. He's got scars on his face and a bald head. 
and they met in a basement room. Um, and here Rudy bent over to put his hands over his mouth and then his ears. It's basically he's telling Nick that he's also he can't hear and he also cannot speak. Uh, Nick is thinking that Rudy is playing a trick on him. And I can understand where he might think that if he's been uh, made fun of and bullied at this orphanage for so long. And he turns away. And Rudy reacts in a way that's probably not, you know, socially appropriate. Uh, but he slaps Nick. Uh, Nick is taken aback. He starts to cry. <laughs> but uh, Rudy takes him to a table with a blank sheet of paper. Uh, Nick refuses to write his name. Rudy hands him a pencil. Nick refuses. Uh, and when he refuses again, Rudy slaps him. Um, I'm not entirely sure what the slapping has to do. I don't know if it's like snap out of it, whatever. But beyond the slapping, Rudy is also very patient. And he points at the paper again. Um, Nick grabs the pencil and he writes the only four words he knows. Nicholas Andros, fuck you. Excuse my language. Uh, he breaks the pencil in half, and that makes Rudy smile. Rudy is very gentle with Nick then. Um, he takes Nick's head between his hands for a moment um, in a kind of an affectionate way that Nick realizes he hasn't been touched since his mother was alive. Um, but he writes on this paper. Uh, Rudy picks up the pencil and writes on the paper, You are this blank page. And it's then that Nick begins to cry. And Rudy comes back to visit Nick for the next six years. Unfortunately, the orphanage uh, goes broke, and they place as many kids as they can, but Nick is not one of them. Um, he was told that a family would take him eventually, and the state would pay, uh, but since Rudy is in Africa after he joined the Peace Corps, uh, Nick ran runs away. He's 16, so uh, given his age, he doesn't think anyone's going to look for him very hard, and Nick does his best to stay out of trouble, so he doesn't really give anybody any reason to pay attention to him. He takes high school correspondence classes because Rudy told him that education is important. And soon Nick hopes to take the high school equivalency test. And it's great because it seems like he likes school. He wants to go to college too. And for someone who was incommunicado uh, for so long, it's not surprising to see Nick. Uh, he enjoys learning and he wants to continue doing it. He had gone so long in his life not knowing uh, much about the world and not even what a tree was, you know what I mean? Like he just, he's a blank page <laughs> and it's really hard to fathom something like that now. Um, but it seems like a lot of people failed Nick and his mom included, even though I don't think she did it on purpose. Um, I think she did what she could being a single parent and working. Um, it's difficult. Even now it's difficult. And she probably didn't have a lot of time to teach Nick everything he needed or wanted to know. And the orphanage probably had their hands full. Um, obviously. But then, you know, Rudy came in and taught Nick that he was someone. He was a blank page. He could write his own story and follow his own path. He just had to want to do it. No more moping about and being sullen about the world. He had to become his own person. And so now Nick wants to do that. And that is where he ends his story for Sheriff Baker. Um, the next day in the morning, Baker arrives at the station and he's looking a little better. He had a bad fever that broke around midnight, uh, but he's feeling pretty good now, which is good news or well, okay. Very briefly good news because he's still sneezing. So he's not out of the woods yet. And given what we know from the last few chapters about how the super flu mutates and changes, we probably know that, uh, Baker is doomed, <laughs> but, 
I digress. Um, Baker sits down and reads Nick's story. And when he finishes, he gives Nick a nice long stare and then asks if he's really been on his own for the past six years. Did he really take those high school courses? Uh, Nick explains that he had just started catching up when on his schooling when the orphanage went under. So he got credits from there and then from La- LaSalle, LaSalle in Chicago. I need to learn how to say things, you guys. I'm serious. Um, anyway, he only needs four more credits. So he needs geometry, advanced math, and two years of a foreign language, which, of course, uh, those are college requirements. And Baker finds this extremely, extremely humorous, um, given Nick cannot speak wanting to learn foreign languages but you know Nick's not offended by the humor uh he gets it so Baker asks uh why Nick has been wandering for so long it turns out because he could not stay in one place for very long as a minor um by the time he got old enough to get a job the economy tanked Nick writes they said the stock market crashed or something but since I'm deaf I didn't hear it (laughs) haha So Nick has his own sense of humor about his situation, which is a little refreshing. Baker responds with, in hard times, the milk of human kindness don't flow so free. And he offers Nick a steady job in Shoyo. Uh, He wants Nick to know that the four men who beat him aren't like the rest of them. And I think Baker and Janie have proven that that by their kindness and their hospitality, um, they've shown Nick that this is true. And I think Nick realizes that as well. Doc Soames shows up later that morning to check on Nick. He calls uh, Baker Big John, as most of uh, the sheriff's constituents call him Big Bad John. (laughs) And he's checking Nick, and it's clear that the four men did a number on him uh, physically. Nick's belly and ribcage is described as looking at like a Canadian sunrise. Um, And his front teeth are still shattered, and that seems to be where most of the pain is coming from. Uh, Soames tells Nick that he'll lose his teeth. Uh, and then he promptly sneezes three times in a row. So our poor Doc Soames is infected um, because no one sneezes in this book so far without coming down with Captain Trips. We find out that Nick's inability to speak does not stem from his inability to hear. It's, an act- it's actually a physical birth defect. Uh, Soames tries to look at the bright side of it. He says that it's a good thing that God hadn't decided to give his brains a stir as well. And it's this that uh, causes Nick to be reminded of Rudy a little bit because Rudy once said that God had given all deaf mute males an extra two inches below the waist to make up for the little bit he had subtracted from above the collarbones. (laughs) So Nick likes uh, Soames and Soames and Baker have a very friendly banter. Um, There is a lot of familiarity uh, there between them. Um, It's clear that they're friends. They tease each other a little bit. Uh, and Soames tells Baker to take off his shirt. He makes fun of Baker's size, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, he just wants to get a look at Baker at the behest of Janie. Even though uh, Baker's fever broke, his wife is still concerned. So Baker does what he's told, but he points out that Soames actually sounds worse than he does. And here we get a little information um, about the superflu in Shoyo. Uh, Soames says, It's funny how a cold will just start making the rounds. Mrs. Lothrop is down sick and the whole Ritchie family. And most of those no accounts out on the Barker Road are coughing their brains out. Even Billy Warner in there is hacking away. Soames gives Baker a thorough checkup and then tells him to go home and get into bed. Uh, Baker protests because the three men in the holding cells are scheduled to go to Camden that afternoon and he can't leave Nick in charge of them again. 
Soames thinks Baker has a respiratory infection and his fever is actually back. So given Baker's weight, Soames says that this is no joke. If it comes down to it, the state police can come by in the morning and pick up Childress, Hogan, and Warner. Nick assures Baker he can handle things. Uh, Baker wants to take Nick's story home for Janie to read as she's taking a shine to Nick. And of course, Nick agrees because he quite likes Janie as well. Baker also tells Nick to get cash from the petty cash fund to get lunch and to pick up his medication for the pain. Um, The three men will be fine. Of course, they're in holding cells. Where are they going to go? Baker calls them. He says they're more dildos than desperados. And he promises to get in touch with the state police to have the three picked up that afternoon. That evening, uh, while Nick is at the station, Janie arrives with dinner for Nick. She tells uh, Nick that Baker's fever has got, it got pretty high earlier, but then it's also back to normal again. So Baker's fever is spiking a lot. It's spiking and then it's disappearing and then it's coming back. Um, And she seems to think that his anger at the state patrol is to blame for the constant shifting of his cold, his fever, um, because the state police told Baker that they wouldn't be able to send anyone down for the prisoners until about nine o'clock the next morning. Apparently, even the state patrol is dealing with a rash of sickness with 20 or so troopers out sick. Uh, People are even going to the hospital now. So Janie is worried and she thinks Soames is more worried than he lets on. And she also thinks it's admirable uh, what Nick has had to overcome. And she wants him to stay in Shoyo. Both she and her husband like Nick. And I kind of get that feeling that Janie and Baker could become some kind of makeshift family for Nick. Uh, You know, despite the fact that Jane's brother beat and robbed Nick, it's not going to be like a happy Thanksgiving get-together there. But uh, it's clear that Janie... um, and Baker have both uh, come to care about Nick in the very short amount of time that they've gotten to know him. And so that night, Nick has kind of a night of restless sleep. Um, Two men from town pop in briefly to check on Nick, probably at the request of Baker or Janie. Um, And then Nick dreams. He dreams of endless rows of corn of which he is walking in. And he is, um, quote, looking for something and terribly afraid of something else that seemed to be behind him. So, okay. So like Stu, he's dreaming, Nick is dreaming of corn and he's feeling fear of something else in the corn, just like Stu did. Uh, But Nick feels it behind him, whereas Stu saw what he was afraid of, the man with no face. Um, Is it the man with no face that's behind Nick? Probably, I don't want to assume, but the coincidence, this is no coincidence. Um, I think that these dreams between Stu and Nick are tied together. Um, We don't really get much else about the dream beyond that because when Nick wakes up, he's a little preoccupied um, because Billy Warner and Mike Childress are at it again. Um, They're threatening Nick, telling him Ray would be back. Um, I don't know, is that a foreshadow? We'll wait and see. Nick doesn't hear most of this, obviously, since his back is to them for the most part as he's sweeping up. But by 8 a.m., Nick is getting a little worried because Baker has not arrived yet. Um, He's concerned that maybe Baker had a relapse in the night. Maybe he got sick again. He has no way of calling Baker, seeing as how he can't speak. Um, And since no one else has brought breakfast um, or contacted him either, he's kind of stuck. So he goes back to check on the prisoners and... Um, he finds, uh, who is it? Yeah, Childress and Warner. 
they are banging on the bars with their shoes. And Nick thinks to himself, just goes to show you that people who can't talk only made up a small percentage of the world's dummies. And I fully take this as being a tongue-in-cheek thing than any real thought that someone who can't speak um, would be a dummy or stupid. It's it's these idiots in the holding cells who think Nick is a dummy because he can't hear or talk, but they're the real morons. They're the ones banging on the bars with their shoes, knowing full well he cannot hear them. Um, Vince Hogan, however, is still in bed. He looks pretty terrible. Um, he looks sickly. And while Mike wants breakfast, Bill was trying to get Nick's attention because he wants Nick to get a doctor for Vince. Um, And Nick agrees, and he leaves a note for Baker or whoever might come by that he's gone off to look for Doc Soames. And, you know, because now Vince is actually sick. He's not just playing possum. So Nick heads out into town, and he finds it very quiet. He thinks of it more like a Sunday than a work day. There's a lot of parking spots that are empty. The bank's shades are still drawn shut. Nick starts to walk towards the truck stop, and that's when he sees Doc Soames' car driving slowly down the street toward Nick. And the car is weaving a bit, um, but Nick manages to be able to stop it. Uh, Doc Soames stops, and Nick finds that Soames, uh, he looks awful. It looks like he's aged about 20 years since the day before. And he also seems very sick. His skin is shiny and yellow, reminding Nick of a dead person. That is when Soames tells Nick that Baker has died. Uh, And Janie is coming down with it too. Whatever killed Baker, uh, Janie now has. And Nick is understandably upset. Well, he's stunned because Janie had just been in the night before and said Baker was feeling better. Um, But Baker's death isn't the most shocking news. Uh, He's not the only one. Soames has signed 12 death certificates in the last 12 hours. He believes another 20 will be dead by noon unless God shows mercy. But Soames says, I doubt this is God's doing. I suspect he'll keep right out of it as a consequence. Soames has no clue what is wrong with everybody. Um, and he's scared. He's, we hear this from all these, like, you know, knowledgeable, tough men, um, that this scares them, this frightens them more than anything else um, that they've experienced in their life. And Soames believes that he, maybe what he's suffering from most is exhaustion. Um, And maybe that's what he wants to believe. Uh, It's like Patty Greer with her hay fever. It's easier to find some other explanation than to believe that the worst is an option. Um, But Soames and Nick, they sit together, they have a little chat. Soames has chills and a fever, and Nick thinks that he should be home in bed, and Soames says, yeah, he'll go, but he just needs to rest. Um, it seems like even moving is, is, is uh, physically uh, taxing for Soames, and he begins listing similar common symptoms. We've heard these before from Atlanta, uh, the chills, fever, the headache, the loss of appetite, Swelling of the glands, swelling in the armpits and groin, which sounds really painful, um, respiratory weakness, and then failure. They're common cold symptoms and uh, symptoms of the flu or pneumonia. And see, they can cure those things, but Soames understands that they can't cure this. He didn't need to be in the Army. He didn't need to be a doctor um, for the Army. He didn't need to be a scientist to know that they cannot cure this. Soames has realized uh, what Dietz and Denninger had already figured out. The virus comes on quickly or slowly. It doesn't matter. It escalates and then backs off and then escalates again. 
and the swelling just gets worse and worse and the debilitation um, increases and then they die. And Soames, uh, he says here that somebody made a mistake and they're trying to cover it up. So Soames is very, um, what is it? He's perceptive. He is not an idiot. He is able to look at what is happening here and understand that this is not just a common cold spreading. Somebody made a mistake. Soames is on point and he can't possibly, um, he can't possibly be the only doctor who is starting to understand this. And we've already seen that the doctor in Sipe Springs certainly understood it. He called the reporters from Houston. Um, and so this is not going to be under wraps for very long. Uh, Nick is wondering if maybe Soames has gone crazy. And Soames understands that. He says he used to be wary of paranoid generations, but now he finds that they were right and he was wrong because Soames explains to Nick that the phones are down. Um, all of them. If you try to dial, you get a recorded announcement. Oh, and the two roads <clears throat> in and out of Shoyo from the turnpike are closed off with barriers that say road construction, but there is no road construction only the barriers. It seems as though Shoyo is now under quarantine, like Sipe Springs and Arnett and so on. And the traffic on the turnpike to Shoyo consists uh, mostly of army vehicles. And the other roads um, in and out of the town, they're no better. One is torn up to replace a culvert, uh, but they think the men working there are soldiers dressed in road crew uniforms because workmen rarely salute each other. And the other road out of town has two cars blocking it. Uh, they appear to have been in an accident, but there are no cops there to clear it. Uh, surprise, surprise. And Soames is just, he believes all of this is madness. And he's not wrong. Um, more people are going to die before the news picks up on something like this. And this frightens Nick. Um, understandably so. It frightened me if someone started talking like this. I would probably think Soames was delirious, to be honest with you. Um, but the evidence is there in front of Nick's face. Baker's dead. Soames is sick. Uh, 12 people have died already. Janie's sick. Um, Nick is still healthy. Soames asks him about any symptoms he's had. Nick has had none of these symptoms. He feels fine. So Soames suggests that Nick leave town, but Nick doesn't think he can leave those three prisoners. Um, they need to eat. He, they have to eat breakfast. They can't be left alone. Um, and then he wants to go see Janie. And it's a very thoughtful gesture, um, at least a responsible one. I think given the trust and kindness that Baker and Janie have shown Nick, uh, I don't think that Nick would feel right just grabbing his things and taking off. Baker had done right by Nick, so Nick wants to do right by him. Soames promises to check in on Nick in the afternoon. Um, but given Soames' illness, uh, who knows if he'll last that long. Uh, Nick has to wait a long time then at the truck stop to get his food because one of the cooks, one of the two cooks didn't show and three of the four waitresses also are MIA. And so by the time Nick gets back to the jail, Bill and Mike are both pretty badly frightened because Vince is delirious by then. Uh, by six o'clock that night, Vince is dead. So we get a nice look into Nick's life through the letter that he wrote to Baker explaining his history. Uh, you know, he lost his father before birth and his mother when he was about eight or nine, and he grew up in an orphanage. He was teased a lot. Um, it seems like Nick could have taken a really bad path in life, if not for Rudy. Uh, he was a man who taught Nick that he was worth something. Um, but then I kind of wish we had gotten a little bit more about Rudy. 
um, for someone having had such an impact in Nick's life. It's just a very brief mention before Rudy joins the Peace Corps. Um, so at 16, Nick runs away, and he's been wandering around ever since, taking care of himself. Quite adeptly, it seems, because he's been taking high school courses when he can, and he wants to go to college. Um, Shoyo seems to be maybe the right place for him. Baker and his wife, Janie, they've taken to Nick. Um, and both are really good people. I really liked Janie and uh, Baker, and they want Nick to stay. Unfortunately, Captain Trips is spreading through the country, and Shoyo becomes another casualty, cut off from the rest of the world by the army, who is still pretending, apparently, um, dressing up as road crew and shutting down phones. Um, it has something of a claustrophobic feel to it, being quarantined like that, um, aware that it probably isn't safe to try and leave, which is really frightening to me. That'd be one of my big phobias is kind of being stuck somewhere and not having the option of leaving without the possibility of death. <laughs> so, you know, Nick is a good kid. He doesn't take advantage of Sheriff Baker or his wife. He's responsible and trustworthy. He doesn't so much want to even put his uh, feet up on Baker's desk. He doesn't want to upset Baker just by doing something like just some, such a simple, casual gesture. And despite the fact that the three men in the holding cells beat and robbed him, Nick treats them humanely and decently. He feeds them. He agrees to get Soames when Vince uh, is sick. And okay, fine. He gave them the finger earlier, but they deserved that much at least, probably more. I don't know if I would have been as kind as Nick. <laughs> um, you know, but Nick doesn't want to leave them alone. Not when Soames suggests he try to get out of Shoyo. And so Nick has some humanity to him. A lot of people might have been scared and tried to run. A lot of people wouldn't have given a, a SHIT about those guys in the cells. Um, and Nick wants to feed them and then visit Janie. So he's going to stay in Shoyo. And Janie is sick now too. And uh, Nick has been in Shoyo a short amount of time. But it feels like it was starting to maybe become a home to him. And I don't know about you guys, but I was really bummed about Baker. <laughs> you knew it was coming, obviously. Uh, just like Janie and Soames, they're both going to die too. But they're really good people. They're decent people. And we're finally seeing death from Captain Trips outside of the Arnett group. Um, the super flu is spreading and taking casualties. And it's happening really fast. Uh, it only took a couple days to take Baker. So, you know, this chapter, it accomplishes a lot. It fully establishes Nick as a character. And we get some exposition of his background in the form of the letter that he wrote for Sheriff Baker since Nick can't speak. And, you know, despite the fact that Nick is pretty young, I mean, he's 21 years old, he shows a lot of maturity and depth. Um, and Fran is 21 too, and she has her mature moments, but she also kind of has her uh, giggly little girl moments too. Um, but her upbringing and her situation was very, it's vastly different from Nick's. Um, and it seems like he had to grow up really fast. Uh, not only with losing his mom at a young, young age, but having to protect and defend himself in the orphanage. And then when he left at 16, um, we don't really know like where uh, he went before he ended up in Shoyo. Uh, he probably got odd jobs here and there, but I can't imagine that it was a very easy path. And it's really sad that Nick finds a place where he might belong, a place where he might stay. And then Captain Trips hits and starts to take away the people who gave him that opportunity. So it's also pretty clear, um, obviously, that Nick is immune, like Stu, having been around Baker and then Hogan, both of whom were infected and not showing any signs of the illness himself. Janie and Soames have already come down with it, 
Uh, there's already 12 dead in Shoyo, 20 more on their way out. When Nick uh, left to find Soames, the way King described it, um, it kind of sounded like Shoyo was like a ghost town already. The population there is dwindling pretty quickly. Uh, but if it if it's also quarantined, it makes you wonder if Nick will actually be able to leave, even if he, you know, if he wants to do that. Even if he's not showing any signs of the super flu, will the army let him just walk out? I doubt it. <laughs> the army has the road shut off and the phones are dead. And what is creepier than potentially being stuck in a town where everyone has died or is dying, or at least the majority of them are dying? Um, given Nick's inability to speak or hear, I feel like that really adds to the terror. Um, you, you talk about feeling like the last man alive. Uh, we only got two chapters of Sheriff Baker, but I really did grow to like him, his morals and how he embraced Nick. So his death has an impact not only to Nick, but the reader as well. And with the super flu spreading and Hogan dead in his cell, um, I kind of wonder, will Nick let the other two men out? Will he let them go? It seems doubtful that the state police will be coming to pick them up now. <laughs> um, but if Nick lets them out, that would potentially put him in danger too. Uh, you would like to think that maybe there are more important things for Childress and Warner to think about now uh, with people dying. But, you know, assholes are assholes. <laughs> so they might go after Nick. And is Nick willing to take that risk? You know, it also keeping them in the cells puts them at at risk for catching captain trips although you know to be honest if they're not immune like nick they're already infected just by being in the same proximity as hogan and baker and so it'll definitely be interesting to see nick's next move um he has a good head on his shoulders he's intelligent and he'll just have to figure a way out of all of this larry's way of escaping trouble was to drive across the country and next week we'll go back to new york where captain trips has begun to settle there as well and that's the end of uh, this episode, um, episode 18, nope, episode 17, chapter 18. <laughs> I will catch on to that. And now if you guys want to hear it, I'm going to give you guys my review on it, chapter two. I'm not going to dive very deep into uh, a review of the movie. I want to try to keep this spoiler free. And the only way I can do that is to just kind of be vague about my thoughts on the film. Um, ultimately, I I really enjoyed it. I was very, uh, it was very entertaining. Um, and it, it did, it met my expectations. And I had some very high expectations. Um, I feel like the changes that they made from book to screen worked, just like in the first movie. I think that the the novel itself is very hard to adapt faithfully without it look, I mean, I, I'm just, I was trying to think of how they could actually translate Stephen King's book to the big screen and it actually work. And it's just, it ha I had a hard time doing it. So I understand why they made certain changes. I liked the changes. Um, nothing will ever touch the book in my opinion. So I was willing to go into the movie with an open mind, um, as I tend to do with most, uh, book adaptations anymore, because, um, if I really love the book, I know that no movie is really going to come close to touching how wonderful the book is. I think the closest for me, at least in terms of King adaptations, the closest for me that ever came was Stand By Me, uh, directed by Rob Reiner. That that was pretty much perfection um, off of the body. And 
Um, I've learned to just really sit back and enjoy these King adaptations. Um, I think a lot, I think Hollywood just has a really difficult time uh, really translating King's vision um, properly. I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for, but anyway, back to it. Chapter two, uh, the performances were fantastic. I am still blown away by how perfect they uh, cast the adults compared to the kids. Uh, James Ransone, oh my gosh, and Andy Bean, and even Bill Hader. I mean, I guess looks-wise, I think Andy Bean and James Ransone really look like adult versions of their child counterparts. Um, Bill Hader knocked it out of the park as Richie, and I already knew Bill Hader was a really... A uh, wonderful dramatic actor. Um, obviously, he's hilarious. I love him. I think he's so funny. Um, but I saw him in uh, the Skeleton Twins with Kristen Wiig, and oh my gosh, he blew me away. And I want to watch Barry because I've heard good things. So Bill Hader was fantastic. Uh, James Ransone was amazing as Eddie. Um, even Jessica Chastain and James McAvoy, the two biggest names of that movie, they did really well with their their uh, their parts. Um, I would have liked to see a little bit more Mike, um, and but what he did, I mean, he they all seem to have their own moment to shine. So ultimately, I was really happy with the performances. Um, Bill Skarsgård, I mean, what can you say about Bill Skarsgård? He really inhabited Pennywise. Uh, I know that he wasn't really very. Um, he wasn't very front and center or, you know, with all these press interviews and everything, they kind of kept him under wraps, which makes sense. Um, but he was great. Uh, we get a little bit more uh, Pennywise, I think, in this movie than the last one. So he was fantastic. Uh, the story was fantastic. Um, very emotional. And that that's the one thing that I w- went into this movie the most worried about was the end of it really hit me hard. Um, I remember I was finishing it while I was in the bathtub and I just had to put it down and I kind of got a little emotional. Um, I think anybody who has the kind of experience as kids as they did, uh, you know, summer riding your bike, staying out past dark, um, that was my childhood. And just the way that King wrote that friendship and even as adults, um, how at the end of the book, they all kind of start to forget again. And that really hit me. So I was hoping that they would stay true to the end of the novel and the movie. And while there were some changes, the impact was still there. Um, I did get emotional at the movie <laughs> quite a few times, actually. Uh, so I consider it chapter two to be a success. I think if I had just any gripes or any um, cons about this movie. The CGI was a little suspect. Um, There were parts of the CGI that you could just really tell it was CGI and it kind of takes you out of the movie a little bit. But the pros of it, chapter two, outweigh the cons and I think it was fabulous. I would like to see it again. I would go see it again. Um, The runtime, oh, everybody complaining about the two hour, 49 minute, almost three hour runtime. Come on. The Avengers was three hours. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was long. Um, And the thing is, I don't mind a long runtime on a movie if it's justified. If it doesn't feel like three hours, then I have no problem with it. And in terms of it, chapter two, I'm, I'm sure some people will disagree with me, but I didn't feel the time. I didn't feel like it was almost three hours. It Once it starts going, it's going. And I didn't feel like there was any downtime. 
Like there was no time that I was like, I could get up and go to the bathroom right now. I did not want to leave my seat. So if you're worried about the runtime, don't. I think that it was justified. I kind of wish it was longer, (laughs) to be honest with you. But um, I'm looking forward to seeing the the mashup that uh, Andy Muschietti had talked about, kind of cutting chapter one and two together and making one long supercut of the movie. So I think that would be fantastic. I hope they do that. Um, even if it's just released on Blu-ray, because I don't think I could go sit in a theater. I know I just said, I don't care about runtime, but really f- like five to six hours is too long to be sitting in a theater. So, um, But yeah, I think out of five stars, I would give it chapter two, four and a half. Um, I thought that, uh, yeah, it was really great. I really enjoyed it. I was so excited for this movie. And usually when I go into a movie excited um, and with high expectations, I'm usually disappointed. But it chapter two did not disappoint me. So if you are a King fan, and that's another thing, I think, I think constant readers, I think pure King fans will enjoy this movie on some level. If you don't, if you didn't like it, if you saw it already, you didn't like it, you know, that's fine. Um, but I was really happy with what I got. So that is my review. Um, my rambling review of it chapter two, I didn't really have any notes. I was just kind of talking off the top of my head of what I remember, So that's it for the end of this episode. And um, if you guys are enjoying the podcast, as always, I would love it if you could leave me a review or rating on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Um, That really helps me out. Um, I, I appreciate the feedback and I appreciate everybody who has already done so. If you have any questions or you just want to talk about uh, today's chapter or any of the chapters we've read so far, feel free to send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. Or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens. Um, or you could go to The Circle Opens blog at thecircleopens.com and leave a comment there. So with that being said, everybody, happy September. And M-O-O-N, that spells. See you next week. <laughs>